seconds, reality as you know it will cease to exist. In its place, you will find a new dimension, identical to the one you've left behind, only slightly better. Take a deep breath and open your mind to the magic within you. This is no ordinary podcast. This podcast is with Richard. A haiku, a college essay. An email from your boss about budget cuts. A formal cover letter. The caption of an Instagram post you edited three times before finally deleting. Modern writing exists within an endless ecosystem of diverse structures, semantic containers, and constrainers, which we pour language into, like one of those Belgian breweries where they use a different kind of glass for each unique beer. But who are you pouring for, and why did you even choose that glass? Poetry itself spans many structures, providing poets and readers of poetry, ostensibly also poets themselves, with the opportunity to flourish within a single form or dedicate an entire work to deconstructing its structure, which is something Swedish poet Ida Boreal does with gusto. Take, for instance, her book, Miximum Kakani, The Sabotage Manuals. Originally written by weaving together fragments borrowed from workers' diaries, pro-sabotage propaganda, and technical instructions, the poetry explores how a single letter, for instance, changing minimum to maximum, can be an act of sabotage, leading future workers to wonder if that was supposed to be minimum? Or wait, was it maximum? In a world that often makes poets, thinkers, and feelers among us feel insane, why not rewrite our stories in a way that empowers us to be the crazy makers? But Boreal's interest in sabotaging structure folds in on itself in the newest edition of the sabotage manuals, subtitled, You Cut It A Pay, We Cut It A Shab. Which I don't even know where that comes from originally, but it's a hilarious subtitle worthy of commemoration itself. In which Ida asked a slew of collaborators and co-conspirators to sabotage the manuscript, cutting it up, changing letters, drawing over the writing itself, doing whatever they saw fit to muck up the gears. Which is what I, in turn, asked my poetic partner, L.A. Marks, to do with this introduction. And why I'm the one who has been interjecting my commentary in this reorganized intro, and why you'll hear me chiming in a few times throughout the interview that we did together with Ida in Anti, a vintage bookstore in Malmö with a uniquely punk approach to publishing and engaging in an economy of words, ideas, and literary activism. Structures get stale, and poetry, Ida's in particular, is a revitalizing rescue mission tearing down the status quo to release words back into the wild. Whether that's via lonely radio callers in rural Sweden, economists lost in their own impenetrable jargon, or even a grieving poet rewriting someone else's poem to find their own way back to reality. These are just a few examples of her many conceptual books and projects, by the way. This episode is going to be particularly poignant to those of you who consider yourselves to be Writers, community builders, activists, agitators, caregivers, creators, and creatures of conversation and collaboration. Words don't just refer to events, objects, and experiences. Grammar is a guide we choose to follow 
as we put words together so they flow in legible patterns. But structure is something else entirely. And it must be questioned if we're going to open ourselves to wavelengths and worldviews. From cut-ups to dreams and everything in between, magic and poetry join forces as we ask Ida Boriel how to subvert a stifling structure. Well, hello, Ida. Hi. Welcome to Ritual Space. Thank you. Our ritual space today is tucked inside one of, I think, the most magical spaces in the world, which is a bookstore. We are surrounded by piles of books, pyramids of books, long lines of books. But where exactly are we? Can you tell us a little bit more about this special place that we're in right now? Mm-hmm. We're in this uh, bookstore in, in Malmö. It's called Anti. Anti. Yes. Anti what? Everything? <laughs> anti Allah? Or antiquariat. Antiquariat, anti, okay. But maybe there are anti, antis to add yeah. to the name. I think you could go, yeah, down one. Punk route of of explaining it. I think it's also a tiny publishing house. Ah, very cool. Poetry mostly so far. Well, I think we're here to talk about poetry mostly, so that seems fitting. Mm-hmm. Well, let's kick off this poem that is this podcast that is this ritual. What's our magic word going to be? You know, one thing comes to mind, but the thing is, it's a it's a one word spell, and I knew it as a child. But the thing is, it works. Great. So I won't say it. Oh, okay. <laughs> Instead, why don't we why don't we do something? We're in the bookstore, right? Yeah. There are a lot of piles and piles of books around us. Mm-hmm. So I thought maybe I can ask you for help. Sure. And in in finding a word. Yeah. And uh, let's see if there's magic to it. So I think I'm just going to close my eyes mm-hmm. and then I'm going to reach out for a book and okay. you say stop. Sure. Mm-hmm. Stop. Okay, so it's a Swedish book uh, by Kurt Solomonsson. It's called Mannen utanför, The Man Outside. Mm-hmm. Okay, and now I'm just going to find a page and a word on the line. So could you say stop again, please? Stop again. Okay. Okay, I have a, I have a, a spread and yep. I move my hand and you say stop again. <laughs> stop for a third time. So, actually, the word is, uh, wow, what a line. Är du nöjd om jag säger att jag ska försöka hålla de närmast anhöriga skadeslösa? Okay. Yeah. Are you happy if I say that I will try to hold the nearest uh, relatives or family members free from... I think uh, free from uh, free from charge or free from responsibility. What is that word in Swedish? The charge. Skad and lösa. Well, I think that should be our word. Mm. I'm sort of hesitating on the translation. It's not a usual uh, word, so yeah. Like skada, like injure. Yes. So, so free from injure. So yeah, um, unharmed. Maybe. Unharmed, maybe. Yeah. Exactly. All right. Mm-hmm. So what we're going to do is on the count of three, we're all going to say it together. But first, can you give us the pronunciation one more time so all the listeners are clear? Skade lösa. Skade lösa. So on the count of three, one, two, three. Skade lösa. Wonderful. All right. Tricky. Tricky. 
So this was just a bit of bibliomancy, which I think is a really wonderful way to relate to the physicality of words. There's all of the randomness that guides us to that particular word in that particular book. And reading your poetry, it seems like you're very much into playing with the ways that the books order the words, the way that the books are created. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about how that kind of playful process goes into your work? I mean, it spells into the, the long word of serendipity. It's another good one. Uh, but it's been, well, fascinating to me because time and time again, I, I stumble on something, you know, and it's maybe supposedly nothing, mm -hmm. like an everyday event, maybe yeah. an irritating everyday event or, you know, a bad phone call or right. tuning into the wrong radio station. So you end up listening to some elderly people being racist or yeah. having a sloppy conversation. And then I find myself, instead of just quickly turning away, I turn my attention to it yeah. and I, I linger. Mm -hmm. And then at times, you know, for me, it starts like a, well, a wrestling game almost yeah. in trying to see is there poetry here? Can, can it, you know, embrace this or, or turn this into... Can you land the fish? <laughs> can I land the fish? <laughs> yeah. Well, I think there's something wonderful there because I think so often people are like looking for magic and then they go, no, 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 not that. No, 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 not that. And they walk past a million open doors, a million interesting signs, a yeah. million things that are calling to them. And they're like, no, it can't be that. And I love where you're saying, start with the, the mistake, the, the randomness and kind of follow it from there. Yeah. Because often it could look just like a, a brief uh, distraction, right? Right. But then it's also, why am I distracted by that? Yeah. And, and why is that just something that I ought to live into the nothingness of, of not remembering or not dealing with? Yeah, and the idea of distraction saying that this thing that has drawn my attention naturally is not as important as the thing that I'm supposed to be focusing on, mm -hmm. but instead kind of removing that and just say no. Well, there's where my attention went. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Your idea about tuning into the wrong radio station, though, I think is a perfect segue into your book, Ring a Hem. Um, can you talk a little bit about the process of how that book came about? Yeah, just mentioning before that it is actually the, the pathway of, on how I wrote a book in 2006. Okay. It's called Re, uh, Radio Scania, Scania uh -huh. Radio, uh, where I, I listened to that uh, it's a local radio show where sure. people, you know, they could just call in and, and yeah, they just speak their mind or, or their hearts and so on and so forth. So I had previously been working a lot with the voices coming from that kind of a, uh, unsympathetic or mm -hmm. even uh, sometimes disgusting collective. Yeah. So a way of, of listening and then turning it into text. Because with this radio show, for the listeners who aren't familiar, Skåne is the region of, of Sweden, mm -hmm. but this is like a call-in show. And so are you saying kind of people's politics kind of take them off into not so fun opinions to hear or the show is sort of just a free for all what's yeah so this is this is has got this really local and uh, um uh, somewhat yeah like a, a, a local and elderly touch mm. to it so a lot of you know uh, retired people yeah 
and also I would say mentally retired, mm. <laughs> where they just hook up into a jargon. Yeah. And at this spot in this room yeah. uh, of of the show, it's uh, you are slightly being uh, a racist, yeah. or you're belonging to a political party that thinks that the part of of uh, Sweden that is gone, eh, which yeah. is just it's as big as LA, actually. Yeah should just be uh, liberated from Sweden and oh, <laughs> become, yeah. a, become like a nation of its own, you know. It's brown and it's got old brownish, well, racist, Nazis roots, right. you know, deep down. Yeah. Um, but actually what's, what's happening at the same time, it's uh, people are alone. Yeah. And... It's you sort of get the sense that if you don't speak on the radio, you won't speak to anyone that day. Yeah. So they call in and they often want to greet people. Mm -hmm. They have long lists of names, mm. you know, that one over there and that one over there. They, they apparently don't meet. Right. But, you know, this radio station as some sort of, of, of uh, um, oasis or where you, where you uh, exist in a way. Yeah. And this, is, this was done before we had, you know, social media and, right. uh, and that. So it's, it's kind of uh, fascinating to look at the way we uh, interact now through social media, through that. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure it's changed a lot in the, in the, a lot yes in the last couple no. of years. Yeah. Yes and no. Because I think it's the same, at the same time, you know, it's like an open space. You can reach yeah. all of Sweden through that. Right. Um, radio talk show, radio show, but people just close in on themselves and mm -hmm. turn it into a very like local thing with, with a few points on the agenda. So how did you turn it into poetry? What was your process for that? Well, I, I listened and uh, I, I didn't want to ridicule. Mm -hmm. And this, that process is the same with Ringahem, Call yeah. Home. So how do I transform these conversations that are ridiculous, yeah. where they sound stupid and they are stupid and also being racist and so on and so forth? Mm -hmm. I didn't want to repeat that and I didn't want to portray them as ridiculous because that would be a way of kicking down as right. well. I wanted to try and grasp something about the human condition. Mm -hmm. right? So uh, there's a way of sort of a, a, a distilled way of portraying a tone of voice or, or a way of speaking. Yeah. Where you say exactly as much as you need to mm -hmm. understand this person is angry or sad, or, but you don't use all of the swear words mm -hmm. or uh, you, 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 just, you don't use the exact words for uh, uh, some kind of racist or judgmental thinking, but you could just mention something in, in that line of thinking and it's enough. Yeah. Well, I think you kind of hinted at it before, but people reveal so much more about themselves than they often mean to. So they're calling to rant about one thing, but if you listen between the lines, you can tell that they're calling to be heard or there's a sadness or there's a human experience that beneath the jargon and the buzzwords you can yeah. you can kind of find. Yeah. And, and so that radio book, a lot of people thought it was funny. Yeah. But there are also those who, like I do, see it as, as really, really sad. Yeah. You know, because it's a solitude that is just so immense, and they're old and they're dying. Yeah. Uh, and and you know that's the the kind of universe they ended up in. It's, it's so it's sad. Yeah, it is quite sad, and I think it's one of the things that 
is often so invisible because the the sad, lonely people are disconnected and therefore it's easy for everybody else to kind of walk by and not know that's the experience. That's the disconnection that yeah. keeps us from recognizing it and also keeps them within it. Yeah. And yeah. I mean, also it's, uh, it's huge in, mm. in, in Sweden, you know, the number of households where people live alone mm. involuntarily also, yeah. and the way uh, the social structures are not being built yeah. when it comes to families and relatives. And so we've got a lot of independence and yeah. uh, pride in that and freedom, yeah. but sometimes it comes at the cost of being really lonely, you know? Yeah. I've, I've, I've heard the phrase loneliness epidemic used in, I think, both the UK and the US um, to talk about some of these things. And mm. yeah, so I guess we'll continue to find themes of connection throughout. Um, but let's bring it back to Ring Ahem. I, I, I think this was such an interesting project and I'd love for you to just kind of describe where the, the impulse to approach um, this, this war in this way came from and then how you went about yeah. again listening and turning it into poetry. Yeah. So um, uh, the previous year I had been working a lot with uh, Belarusian poetry and trying to get their message across during the, the uprising in, mm -hmm. in, in Belarus. Um, and when the large invasion started, the illegal inver mm -hmm. uh, invasion by Russia in Ukraine, I just, you know, dived right into it through that network of colleagues and friends yeah. and uh, as some of us do I got totally you know swallowed by the the minute by minute mm. uh, news reports coming from from uh, Ukraine and so you know I was sitting with my phone for six hours a day yeah maybe constantly right, right? refreshing the the feed yeah yeah, yeah 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 and trying to understand and learn more also mm -hmm. about ukraine and, and the right. history and so on uh but i thought and that you know i heard a colleague say that uh, to someone else that yeah of course i'm going to write about this war i write about everything that's going on around me and mm -hmm. and i thought silently to myself that i will not write about this war i'm not ukrainian i'm not russian mm -hmm. it's not for me But then uh, after maybe four months mm -hmm. of, of listening um, and, and reading about this, and also since the beginning of uh, March, I think, reading and listening about these conversations, because the, the Russian soldiers were calling home and uh, the Ukrainian security services were uh, intercepting it. Yeah. And then, you know, picking short fragments mm -hmm. and, and, and uh, putting that on YouTube, for instance. So I had all of those conversations within me. Yeah. Uh, and, and then I was on my morning walk and I thought, you know, this, this needs to be translated. The people need to, to, to hear this mm -hmm. because it's not only what's going on right now. It is also the, the a human condition of what yeah. war does to, to, to the human being. Well, and there's something so, that's... So it's, it's kind of... Uh, in, in, and, and then it tapped into what I, I refer to as, as uh, literary activism, because mm -hmm. I felt I need to act fast. It needs, this needs sure. to reach the audience as fast as possible. Yeah, we're in an accelerated media state, so this needs to, to get out. Yeah. yeah. But I think it's just the... The thing that stood out to me there of thinking about how often in war the goal of one side versus the other is to dehumanize them, to try and portray them as savages, as animals, as less than. And it's interesting that Ukraine security services realize that in this conflict, 
showing that these are young guys that are calling their moms at home and are also caught in this conflict was something to share and to to show that, yeah, that there was kind of, I think, more um, a state aggression that was catching these guys up and it just as much as anyone else. Yeah, I, I mean, I was, uh, I did try to reflect on why they mm. would uh, publish these excerpts, right? Yeah. Because I realized that if I'm going to publish this, I'm also going to be, in a way, collaborating with a, a military service. Sure, yeah. Um, and and that's not something that I, <laughs> I wish for myself to do, yeah. in a way. Um, but I think that they were trying to reach the mothers and spread the message across yeah. Russia. Right. Uh, and 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 that could be a reason for them uh, publishing it. And they were also trying to fight against the state propaganda, right? I mean, to show that people are actually real human beings that are scared and shocked and don't know what the hell is going on instead of whatever we get fed through corporate media or state media. Yeah. And, and, um, also the, the, yeah, because what was clear to me, uh, listening and reading about these hundreds and hundreds of conversation was that it keeps, uh, one theme that keeps to reappear is that they are criticizing, um, their, uh, commanders, mm -hmm. that the command is not working and it's using them and it's stealing the the stuff and and that so the organization in which the mother sons are dying it's not professional it's corrupt and and in in horrible horrible ways yeah because i think that's often the 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 lie that war is trying to sell is that this is a noble cause and this is the right thing to do and you know both sides will will use that narrative in various ways but here they're calling evidence from the people on the front line themselves that we're not buying into that narrative. Why are we here? Yeah, <laughs> this yeah. sucks. This yeah. is not, uh, this is not, we're all in this together for this noble cause that we've signed up for. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it also opens up to even, even larger uh, atrocities in the way that the Russian state is trying to sell, uh, you know, the, the victories of, of mm -hmm. the Red Army. Yeah. And that there's a long, long history here of not dealing with the crimes of the past. Right. So when the the soldiers are in Ukraine today, they are supposed to be there in this cloud of the the myths of, of the Red Army. Right. But so when they are speaking about war crimes, as they are in these conversations, mm -hmm. this would also be a way of trying to cut through yeah. uh, or reach people. Uh, in in that propagandistic uh, myth. You mentioned literary activism and the way that you're talking about this book, it makes me think a little bit about your other great series. I think there's multiple versions of the sabotage manuals. Would you consider this form of literary activism to be almost sabotage to the war machine? I would be, I would be happy to see it work that way. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, I think... One of the things that I was so curious about, curious about, and I'm looking at the cover of this book right now, is there's this very kind of intense image of a hare, a rabbit. It's got a bright red eye. And this is a Russian term. Wait, sorry. It's not just a bright red eye. It's her own nail polish dripped onto the ink drawing of the hair. So it looks like it's been shot in the eye and bleeding. That's a more yeah. accurate description, yes. But so can, from what I gather, this was a kind of Russian term that was coming up. But can you tell me a little bit about the hair, um, both in the, 
the factual, literal sense, and then also how it became a metaphor in the work. Because we are, uh, with that question, in a way, returning to this one word, the question of Skadalas, I think. Mm. In this word uh, of the hair, Saichonok is mm-hmm. one uh, diminutive w- yeah. version of it. So I kept reading in, in the English translation of the conversation, like uh, rabbit or sweetie or yeah. honey. And I thought, I started a t- tiny investigation, right? Yeah. What are they saying in Russia? And so the, the intimate words uh, and the words for your, your child or your lover mm-hmm. in, in Russian, it's a whole story in itself. And then there are a lot of animals. Yeah. And we don't have the equivalent in Swedish. So my first impulse was, okay, no, I'm not going to say lilla hare. In, mm-hmm. in Swedish because it sounds stupid. Right. And this is not my aim. This, this is like so important. And then instead of just, you know, tossing it out, saying mm. this does not belong. You took the detour. Yeah. I, I certainly took the detour. I read a whole book about uh, the figure of the hair in the poetry of Velomir Shlebnikov, a book in Russian. So yeah. I had this app on yeah. my phone and I tried it to decode it and, yeah. to, and, and, and to see what is the hair in his poetry, in his anti-war poetry. Right. Yeah, the way he turns it around and it's like a trickster figure mm-hmm. in, in uh, the cultural history in, yeah. in Slavic countries and also a little bit in, in Sweden, actually. Hey, in the United States too, we've got Bugs Bunny. <laughs> yeah, Bugs Bunny, yeah. right. So, but it was this, uh, it, it became also like a symbol, you know, the way the mothers were, were speaking to their sons in such a lovingly intimate way, saying, yeah. you know, hey, little bunny, mm-hmm. how are you? And then little bunny starts to speak about war crimes. Yeah. And the way they accepted it and, and felt, you know, pre- presented it as if it was, make, would, was making sense right. within the conversation. So not... The monsters, right? Yeah. Because, the, you know, the, the Russian soldiers are also spoken about as, as orcs from, mm-hmm. yeah, from Tolkien, right? Yeah. But in, in the conversations, they are not monsters or not in, you know, the single-handed way we, we yeah. use to portray monsters. Because yeah. they are monsters that are also being really sweet. And, you know, this place of the, the human psyche that you can actually fit it together within one conversation or if you widen that circle within one family or within mm. one nation, that's that's just really, really horrifying. Yeah. I think that it almost makes me think of like, there's a line, there's a family at home that is, our son is gone in this thing. We're thinking about them. We're calling, we're reaching out. There's the connection from that family to the person and all of that family connection is flowing with the the pet names, the little rabbit, all of that. But then what is flowing back is this kind of very painful, horrible experience and information. It's not, you know, how's vacation? It's, ugh, this is what's happening. This is where I'm scared. This is the things that we're doing. Mm. And yeah, I think the clash between that is quite quite yeah, noticeable. Exactly. The clash or the 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 rupture or the the gap. Mm-hmm. Um because you also have again and again uh, phone calls between, well, there are several several in my book uh, between a mother and a son, and she refuses to accept what he's saying. So the mother says that you are killing fascists, mm-hmm. and the son answers that no, we are killing civilians. Yeah, and she won't take it in. 
Wow. Or a mother who is telling her son that, you know, you have to stay. You can't leave because you owe it to Russia or right. what do you think is going to happen? And it's going to be so shameful if you, yeah. if you run away. So it's also um, the, mothers be- that the betrayal, have into the betrayal the of the mothers right. in relation to their own sons. Yeah. Well, and I, there's so many layers to that. Just thinking about how do the mothers protect themselves with this understanding? Because it's hard having your son away at war. But if you buy into the state propaganda, then your son's doing this noble thing. And if your son is the one that's trying to undercut that story... You don't want to have that because then how terrifying is that, that your son is over there, doesn't want to be there, isn't doing something noble, hmm. um, is doing horrible things. Suddenly that makes it harder to kind of bear that weight, I imagine. Yeah, yeah. Well, I want to um, follow Lisa Ann's lead and bring us back over to this wonderfully titled book, uh, Mixum Kakani. Mm-hmm. Is that how we're going to say it? Uh, a sabotage manual. And one of the things that I loved is just this idea of linguistic sabotage and the example of how uh, if you're, cause I used to be a technical writer and just the idea that if you just change one letter, so instead of minimum, it becomes maximum that creates maximum confusion. Cause someone comes along and goes, I don't know if this is supposed to be minimum or maximum. Suddenly it's mm-hmm. very ambivalent. And, um, this was also from research and diaries and things. So what was the process of researching sabotage? I was thinking about the factory and, our some of us, you know, might have you know also rom- romantic views of old uh, brick factories yeah. and you know working together and that kind of system. And I was starting started to think about what is the factory today? Yeah. Uh, what if the factory is the production of the subject or the mm-hmm. ego? And uh, then in the, in that. In that case, what is the line of, of, of work at the factory floor? How am I producing yeah. uh, what is being asked of me? Then, of course, uh, I love the idea of sabotage as, uh, as Elizabeth Gurley Flynn wrote about it. She was a feminist suffragette. Mm. Um, in 1916, she wrote about sabotage as a pamphlet. Yeah. And then as a fine thread of deviation. Mm. So more, you know, uh, about this one word thing again, Yeah. Uh, not blowing up bombs or using a huge amount of, of violence or aggression. Mm-hmm. So if it's a fine thread of deviation, it's also, I think it has uh, tender and care yeah. in it. It might have and also humor. Yeah. Because if you want to resist uh, something large, like a huge oppressing system, mm-hmm. you also need to get some kind of um, energy to keep going, right? Yeah. There needs to be, if we can find play in trying to make something something change, if we can play around, you know, finding the cracks in late capitalism, yeah. well, you know, that's a, yeah, that's, that's a place that can... I think can 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 make one start to play a little bit with you know the the way we we reflect or look at ourselves or the way we are supposed to do or our identities. Yeah. You know, the, well, and I think it's so present. I think just taking two words, revolution and resistance. Revolution can end up a little bit utopian, and it's kind of always over the next hill, and everything's going to be better as soon as we get the revolution going. Then all of these problems will go away. But revolutions kind of often. It's a turning motion. It can kind of bring back in the thing that you're hoping to banish. Um, whereas resistance, I like 
can be found in everyday actions. And um, I always like Takim Bey's idea about the temporary autonomous zone and how can we just not wait until this fabled revolution, but find it in small communities and small spaces. You can have a, hmm. a revolution in the back of a bookstore in a single conversation. And reading through this book, I thought it was just so wonderful, all of the ways that we can kind of take that power back, that friction of resistance, and kind of take that for ourselves, that satisfaction that I wasn't just an automaton today doing as I was told. Yeah. I was... No, yeah, and I mean those thoughts go 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 way back, even to Russian formalists like Sierzhglovsky yeah. when they mm. speak about the uh, automated gaze. Yeah, and and the way we just go about as 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 robots or or do you know walking our own footsteps. Right. Um, the and then the idea that you know, what if I just tilt it a little bit, yeah. <laughs> and it could just change the whole perspective right. uh, of of how you go about to do something. Well, and I think that takes us full circle um, back to kind of what we talked about with those those detours, where we even outside of the working world get hung up on, oh, the Google Maps has given me this direction. This is the path. I got to follow the dot. I've got to get there on time. And we all want to walk in a straight line. And we could walk past the whole carnival and say, oh, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. don't have time for that. Whereas it's really nice when you suddenly go, wait, well, where am I going? And what do I want to do? Maybe, maybe I was going to the carnival afterwards. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> maybe that's a different idea. So there's two versions of this book. Uh, or, I mean, there's, more. there's many more, <laughs> many more, but uh, there's two versions sitting on the table in front of me. Mm -hmm. And one of them, you decided to let uh, a whole slew of collaborators and co-conspirators sabotage the text itself. Where, what happened <laughs> when you, when you gave your, your lovely little book to your writer friends and said, <laughs> break it? <laughs> They were happy. Of course they were. <laughs> they wanted to, to were, be in it. Were you nervous at all? <laughs> no, because I, I just felt like, you know, there is, uh, this is the way, this is the logic of this this book. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm trying out in, in each uh, chapter or, or suite of the mm. book, I'm trying out different, you know, also uh, linguistic forms. Sure. So there's one chapter which is the dictionaries more or less. There is one which is more of the lyrical poem and one which is a handbook. Mm -hmm. And also, you know, playing on those uh, historical pamphlets and also mm. re reading workers' diaries and, and yeah. so on, all that material. I felt like it doesn't it doesn't fit very well with me being, you know, the sole author, yeah. the poet behind the book and that kind of uh, link to ownership or so um I just wanted to to invite them to to do the the act of, yeah. of of sabotaging that I was writing about. But what if they turned it into a manual about being a perfect and obedient worker? <laughs> yeah. The ultimate like, sabotage. Yeah. <laughs> Someone could have just, you know, cleaned it and put it in order. <laughs> <laughs> um what bit of sabotage kind of surprised and delighted you the most when when you saw it returned? I I was delighted by the fact that that some of them started to draw. Mhm. Mm like poets, yeah. That just you know, so they push their own, yeah. You know, uh, supposed route right. or how to go about a poem, and and, yeah. and and so the playfulness mm -hmm. that that came back to me and that yeah. they found. Cool. The graffiti on the the walls of the book itself. Well, 
I want to move on to talk about one more book, and this is the most recent one, but I think the best way to kind of introduce it is, L.A., I would love for you to talk about um, the way in which we read this the other day. Mm. Did I tell you, by the way, how I even found you? No. <laughs> okay, so maybe maybe I can start with that, too, because I think it's kind of, uh, it kind of goes with the whole bibliomancy, taking the long way, tilting the pinball game. So when we were planning this trip, we were doing a lot of research about magic and the forest, not so much about literature. And suddenly, just a couple of weeks before we were leaving, I was like, I'm a professional poet. And I have not looked into contemporary poetry in Sweden at all. So I got out the most, uh, the most famous and reliable uh, Oracle that exists, which is Google, and started Googling contemporary Swedish poet, like literally contemporary Swedish poet. <laughs> like, And I read a few things here and there. I maybe read only three or four different people until something of yours came up. And I was like, ah, I like this one the best of what I've seen so far in my Googling search. So then I just Googled your name. And one of the very first results was your bio on Ugly Duckling. And one of the poets who works for me with Ars Poetica is Eduardo, who's the publicist for Ugly Duckling. And he was coming to our house to cat sit for us while we're in Sweden. And so I was just there immediately like, it. oh my God, like what, what are the odds? You know, like how, what? Uh, and so when I asked, when I asked him about you, he was like, I literally just had a Zoom with her like yesterday. So it just worked out so perfectly. And um, when he sent through the like preview, I guess, manuscript pages of your newest book, Ma, I started reading a few pages to myself and I was excited to share with Devin. And we were actually with a friend in Copenhagen, uh, two friends actually in Copenhagen, one who's a Danish uh, economic theorist and another who's a Scottish storyteller, another professional writer. And we decided to read it to each other in the round in a cemetery in Copenhagen. We read maybe the first 15 pages or so together and just loved the way it sounded with all of the words flowing together, the, the oral nature of it was gorgeous. So I just wanted to let you know that we, we love doing that together and your words really came alive just over the bridge. <laughs> it's a beautiful image I see in front of me and reading at the cemetery also. I mean, uh, with the Sabotage book, I work a lot with collective readings mm. and, and simultaneous readings. So we are planning for a collective reading in, in uh, New York in October. Oh, how cool. Oh, this ma, yeah. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. Maybe we can come up to New York for that. <laughs> Please do. <laughs> but so also us reading this in Copenhagen, this is based on uh, or taking inspiration from a Danish poet, right? Uh, and so tell us a little bit about that piece and how that uh, stirred something within you and decided to come out in yet another form. Yeah. So uh, this book, Ma, it's like a, a requiem. It's a book of mourning, mm -hmm. and uh, it started with the mourning process that uh, where I couldn't read mm. or write for a year. And then Inge Christensen's book, Alphabet, was one of three books mm -hmm. that I felt actually he held the ground in mm -hmm. a way. I was able to, to read it. And, I mean, I was trying to write. I was trying to, be, to, be, to continue to be a poet, 
because mm-hmm. that's what I was before, before I, uh, this traumatic event happened mm-hmm. when, when I lost my child. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I thought, I tried everything. I was just uh, listening to piano music and yeah. playing along on the keyboard because I felt, it sounds a bit funny now, but it wasn't at the time. I thought, you know, there must be some kind of muscular memory mm-hmm. in my finger, in my hands. So I'm just going to sit here and write really, really fast. And then I'm going to see if any words are created from yeah. that kind of furious uh, finger tapping. From there, I, I thought I would just write her book. So I started with the first pages and I just copied it. Yeah. And then somewhere there uh, along that route, I started to be a little bit critical yeah. towards her work. You were, you and were copying the book Alphabet. Yeah. So you were just kind of, oh, I'll write without worrying about yeah. trying to say something else. I'll just no, no, no. Or... I just write her book. I just, oh, okay. I, will, I will just repeat it. Go right, Not exactly. to publish it, but yeah, just, yeah, yeah, you know, just because to I, exercise I the, the I was hands, in a spot, yeah. yeah, where I don't have a language. Right. And this is usually what happens to me yeah. over and over again. So yeah. I didn't have a language and I thought I would just use hers and then I would just say what she's saying. But then, you know, somewhere in, mm-hmm. within that work, a friction started to happen. Right. And I started to, in a way, answering. Detours. Yeah. Detours, yeah. Coming from, from you know, it's, it not being dark enough or not expressing the anger mm-hmm. uh, that, that I, I was carrying. Right. So I felt that then in the end that I was sort of um, inverting her text. Yeah. So that's why the margin is a bit odd. Yeah. Because, uh, yeah, so there's a straight right margin mm-hmm. in my poems. And I thought it's almost like you push one of her real poems. I'm just going to show you on the book here. As if you had her poem here, the real poem, and then you mm. just, so you can, yeah. So just for the, the listener at home, we're talking about how the idea of the one page kind of pushing over into the other as if there's like the empty space of... Yeah, and, and the, the margin being awkward, right? Right. Because it would, yeah, supposedly it would be on the other other page. Almost like imagining if you were translating something from Japanese or Hebrew or something that goes in a different direction and having the original on the left side and the translation on the right side. Mm-hmm. So they're almost a mirror image of each other. Yeah. yeah. And so her rhythm or, or she repeats, you know, uh, that something exists. Mm-hmm. The apricot trees, yeah, and I think uh, Susanne she has exist in 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 the English translation, mm-hmm. uh, and I was in uh, you know that kind of a depressive state, yeah, where you're not you're definitely not sure that there is a future, mm-hmm. so there's no horizon, but also hesitating on what can I actually say, yeah, exists. I mean, eating an egg and yeah. suddenly not being sure of it's is, is this an egg, yeah. So from there, sort of agreeing with myself that things have existed and secondly, agreeing on the alphabet. So, you know, the, my, the deal with myself was that if I'm going to be a poet and keep writing, I have to accept the alphabet. This is an order, mm-hmm. a way of ordering things in the case that, that I am experiencing. So I'm just going to start with the alphabet and things that were. I had no idea that this response was catalyzed by such a traumatic experience. And I mean, you, you sense the sadness and I was thinking of it more on a global scale, you know, the, the macro level. And it's just making me think of so many people that Devin and I both meet in, in somewhat different contexts sometimes that are 
desperately seeking a therapy or a catharsis or a healing or the magic words Mm -hmm. to help them get through something like that, you know, varying degrees. It, it seems like everyone has that, that thing, that, that kind of lump in their throat or that wall around their heart or that wall right in front of their face that they're trying to figure out how to climb over or dissolve or, or, or remove the bullet, you know, and this is such a beautiful recipe for doing that. You know, the feeling of paralysis that you said that you felt, the feeling of not even knowing what an egg is, what what language is, I'm, I'm going to take with me and I hope listeners can think of too. Like if you feel like that, find a piece of work that has inspired you in the past or has brought you some feeling of positivity and just rewrite it mm. as a start. Mm. That's gorgeous. Well, and I was thinking too that that was one of the older ways of what you're supposed to do as a writer. If, yeah. if, if you were going to be a poet, start by copying out, you know, Alfred Lord Tennyson by hand and <laughs> eventually. Or like ancient monks, you yeah. know, just sitting and just copying holy words and holy texts and drawing little scribbles in the marginalia. Yeah. And yeah, so I think um, there's a couple of thoughts that I wanted to share, but um, that experience of dissolution, you know, we, we, we move with programs that are automated, that we rely on and trust, and then suddenly uh, the, the gears slip and everything falls apart and figuring out how to rebuild that, the, the beautiful metaphor of the book being literally called alphabet because it is these letters, these sounds that we use to create that scaffolding of meaning. And so starting with something that was known that spoke to you and then finding, okay, once I get some momentum with this, I can see where it takes me. Um, you're also sitting underneath a pile of books right now, but there's two copies of Haruki Murakami's um, IQ84, who we just saw speak at the Louisiana Festival. And one of the things that he said, kind of the whole conversation was very enigmatic and beautiful in that way. But he just said, oh, well, I write when I want to write. And when I don't want to write, I don't write. <laughs> and I think uh, he, he then later clarified that his, for him, don't write is doing translation and other work and <laughs> things like that. But um, I think people often get stuck trying to force something. They think they're supposed to go from A to B. And so they're trying to make this journey, even though there's something in them that doesn't want to leave A or wants to take that turn. And so I like that even in the hardship of this experience, you sat with it and were present with it until the way um, Ford revealed itself through um, through texts and expansions beyond them. Yeah. And I think also for me, it was very important when I gave myself permission mm-hmm. to write about the huge traumas of the historical past Yeah, and not only my own direct experience. Right. So my loss and my suffering uh, gave me the mandate mm-hmm. to speak. Yeah. Uh, because I, I put it in relation to, to my own wounds. Yeah. And uh, because that opened up for me, you know, all the vaults of, of the images mm-hmm. and, and things read and understood and, and stories heard that I had within. It's like a yeah. huge archive yeah. of, you know, the maelstrom and, and the atrocities of the past. Yeah. So it was giving myself, you know, the permission to write about that, 
not write a, a book of mourning uh, that is trying to be soothing mm-hmm. or showing the love or the dreams or, you know, the world right. that came apart, but rather being the raging mother that I was, mm-hmm. but without the child that yeah. was supposed to balance right. this view of, you know, at the same time, a world which is, is a pretty dark place. Yeah. So it's it was a, a way for me to become, I think, a, a parent. Yeah. You know, and in looking and and speaking about the world and 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 saying it, you know, like it is too. Yeah. Um, in that sort of sense, and then there is, uh, under the letter M, and X, there is a, a an I speaking. Mm. So that that's when you have a mirroring of the private or the personal right. experiencing. Shining through. Well, and I think what you're saying here is really so important because often if we talk about writing as catharsis or healing or any of these kinds of things, there's almost like a rushing. It's like we want to get past the bad feelings quickly and, okay, you're going to write through your grief, which means you're going to be happy at the end and you're going to get to that and that's going to be the goal when actually, and people are like, oh, they're that person's feeling down. They shouldn't watch a depressing movie. They shouldn't, you should protect you from these evils in the world. but when you're in that state, you have a unique perspective into suffering, into sorrow, into loss. You can see it much more clearly than than other people can in those moments. And so when you're able to look out at the world and see all of those hardships and horrors and know the reflection in your own experience, I think that's where the catharsis that is the most powerful actually comes from. Not from trying to bandage the wound prematurely, but expelling kind of what's in there. And I think that takes us back again to what we started with about this loneliness of when somebody is so cut off from the connection and communication, then that enables this kind of embittered perspective where the pain I'm feeling inside that I can't recognize, I see everywhere. And so it's all their fault. And here's all of these problems rather than kind of recognizing that pain and looking out and saying, oh, you know, some somebody who's lonely out in the suburbs of Malmo and is living on their own and feels isolated probably has a ton in common with somebody who is a refugee who moved here and has experienced hardship and has been uprooted from the world they know. And there's so much commonality there that if that one person could find that thread, um, I think they could feel a lot better than they do in the isolation. Yeah, and I also maybe in addition think that there are views of how you can speak or think mm-hmm. when you are in such a state. Yeah. When you are depressed or when you are uh, mourning a loss, for mm-hmm. instance. So others have written about it, like Jacqueline Rose, about the, the, the mourning mother, mm-hmm. the way she's depicted in the media and so on and so forth. So one thing that she rarely is, is angry. And also uh, being able to reflect mm-hmm. and and being an, an intellectual, right? So that's not the kind of mothers we are asking for. Hysterical and it's anguish, yeah. crying, yeah. crying, and and hysterical, yeah. and and so I think that also builds into an idea of um, who are we when we are not 
you know, well, or when mm -hmm. we are furious or when we are sad. Yeah. That that is, it's not just, you know, some kind of dangerous mood that we yeah. need to get out of as soon as possible. Mm -hmm. it's, I don't, it's not bad for you to be in a bad spot right. from time to time, you know. It, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm totally against that that should be, ought to be something that that everyone should avoid or right. like a happy life is, is not, you know, being thrown into that kind of a dark wormholes. It's a part of the human experience. And I think you expand your boundaries, your radius when you have those experiences and it allows for relation that, you know, um, I, I lost my mother a few years ago and I have found moments where somebody else has experienced a loss and I'm able to connect with them in a way that I would not have been able to before because it's not like I've got advice and here's, you know, it's, it's going to get better. Don't worry. It's more just being able to be like, yeah, <laughs> there's a whole wing <laughs> of suckiness that I have gone on the tour of and I can give you a tour of as well. And we can both kind of be there together and that's a very different experience than somebody who's never opened that door or is trying to rush you out of there very mm. quickly. The, the museum docent that's like, we closed five minutes ago, get out of here. <laughs> um, what is it that you're excited about right now in your writing and your work? Is there another so project or my idea? My latest book just yeah. came out. Okay. Yeah, I, I got it like a week ago. It's here. Look at it. Oh, okay. So you're going to have to say the title for me. Yeah. So <laughs> it's... Sorry's Labyrinthen. Yes. Tell us about it. So on the, the front, you have a backside of a painting. And on the back of the book, it's the painting. Mm -hmm. But uh, there are also some red marks right, made yeah. on it. Uh, and so it's a conservator who has made the marks. Mm. And, and inside the book, uh, there's a conservator who says, uh, you know, to, to see the backside, it's a, pr a privilege of, of a conservator. And that's where it happens. It, this looks like a cubist representation of like an uh, industrial machine. Mm -hmm. Is that what it is? Actually, there are uh, people that are playing uh, pool. So the pool players. Oh, yeah, wow. Yeah. yeah, I see the billiard table and the... T -t 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 okay, okay, mm -hmm. okay. Wow. Yeah. Who's the painting by? So his name is Gan. It's an abbreviation. He's, he's from Lund. It's nearby. It's so cool. It, it's... I love this painting. Huh. <laughs> I love this picture of you on the back, too. So it's like a tour in the, in this huge storage place out mm -hmm. in, in the harbor in Malmö, where uh, they have over 40,000 objects. It's Malmö Art Museum. Oh. Um, and you, you are following the conservator as, as a guide through the spaces, and she's speaking about her work mm -hmm. and the way you tend to the materials and the objects. And a lot of, of things in between where she says things like, for me, as a conservatory, every object has the same value. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's, uh, it's I like mean, that's a, just so radical as anyone who knows anything about the ridiculous art market and world. I mean, we just passed a gallery that had an advertisement in the window that was a poster of a... Um, I can't remember who the painter was, a super, super famous old painter that was like, this painting sold for three million kroner. Yeah. Like, it's such a weird world. It's beautiful to hear someone saying that every single object could have the same value because we live in a world where that is so not true. <laughs> so there's this like really, really, uh, it's, it's, they are working with, um, 
during uh, under a microscope. That's you know it is tiny, tiny fractions of of millimeters. Mm -hmm. um, it's it's at the same time really radical uh, in in that kind of a statement, but also the way they say that well, we're not working for you. Yeah, we're not working for the for the people here that wants to see famous artwork. We're working for future generations. Right. So those are you know the ones that we turn to. So we want to try and preserve, so that you know the future can can see this. Yeah, I, I think that's that's so beautifully put. And value is one of those things that changes so much with time. That someone's vacation footage that they took yesterday on their iPhone, if you show it to me right now. Yeah, all right, it looks like a street, it wasn't well shot, whatever. But in 30 years, you're going to look at it and you go, oh my God, this is so incredible. There's so much that's in there that is just not visible to us yet. Mm -hmm. um, well, we're surrounded by books and there's so many more that we could get into, but I think it's time for us to, to come to our spell and to put a little bit more magic back into the world. And what ideas are percolating for you right now? What's something that the listener can do to to bring some of your ideas and magic into their reality? That's a tricky question. I know. I saved the trickiest let's one for see, last. Let's see. Where have we been? Where have we been? The one word, the serendipity, the rewriting, just doing something that appears to be really simple, like, a, and yeah. like an everyday action. Well, I've, I've got an idea. Because mm -hmm. I think we've talked about detours and this rewriting and bibliomancy. And so assuming that most listeners have a book somewhere, I'd say kind of either just do it randomly or just kind of follow your heart and find maybe one of your favorite books and open it up and start by just copying it out as it is. And maybe try and get, you know, at least a couple of paragraphs before you allow yourself to start detouring and deviating, but see how long you can kind of stay with the text as it is exactly and then kind of be moving between the two and then at whatever point you want to take your leave and go off into your own flights of fancy. How does that Yeah, that, sounds, that sounds lovely. Yeah. And then you can also, you know, sort of get, this, get to experience uh, quite clearly where your impulses are heading. Right? Yeah. And the way you write something in the wrong way, that could also mm -hmm. be a, a, a lovely yeah. opening to a different kind of text. Yeah. And then I'll add one more bonus spell, which is uh, fuck something up at work. <laughs> I was just going to say, you could take a page from her book, literally, uh, and you could either sabotage what you read or make a response or a critique of it. You know, maybe you could find something that you read out in public, maybe a piece of propaganda or an obnoxious advertisement. And instead of just rolling your eyes and ignoring it, respond to it, mess it up. Do a little graffiti even. I don't know. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you so much for your time, Ida. Thank you for having me. And for more of Ida's magic, you can find her many books, including Hem, also known as Home, Ma, or Mixamum Kakani, the Sabotage Manuals, wherever you ethically purchase books. I mean, ideally, you would go to Auntie in Malmo, Sweden, and, and buy there. But, you know, online also works. Yeah. You know, don't let perfect be the enemy of good, right? Y yeah, of course. And speaking of not letting perfect be the enemy of good, we are all working together to create a slightly better reality. And you can help us with that mission, sabotaging a tyrannical system by joining our Patreon at <laughs> patreon.com 
slash this podcast is a ritual. I had no idea what you were going to say. Sabotage the system by becoming patrons. Do Give it. me $4. Fight it will, capitalism. It will, it will feel like the most incredible little sabotage you can do every month. Well, I will say that it definitely makes my reality slightly better. And it's not just the economics of the thing, but it's really the energy exchange. We have just had an incredible journey through Sweden. Uh, this is one of the final episodes of the Swedish series that we're doing. And this was all made possible by the magic of this podcast, its listeners, and its participants. That is so true. So, do you want to do the final outro? I normally just say something kind of pithy and fun, like, I believe in you, your magic is real, but you you do what you want to do. Well, I guess I would like to end by inviting everyone who listened this far into the episode to feel the future. <laughs>